In the Garden of Eden, we read, was made to grow not only what was good for food, but every tree also that was pleasant to the sight. And in that garden, man was placed to keep it and to dress it. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I'm one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Jonathan, we're back. So a couple months ago, we completed up our trilogy on The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertiange. And now I feel like we're finishing another trilogy of 19th century Anglicans at Oriel College. Newman's kind of the odd man out there. He was an Anglican at Oriel College. We read Idea of the University, which he wrote after a few changes in his life. But Thomas Arnold, John Henry Newman, Edward Copleston today, Copleston, you can roast me in the comments if I get some of those uh, Anglicisms wrong. These are all, like I said, these are all Anglican academics at Oxford, Oriel College is one of the constituent colleges. They were all there around the same time, and they're all writing about liberal education, classics, whether it's useful or just kind of pleasant, or whether education's an end in itself or it has some broader purpose. And it's been really fascinating. I mean, these men knew each other. They interacted. In Newman's case, he quotes Copleston extensively in The Idea of a University. And today we're reading Copleston's own reflections on liberal education and the classics. He is responding to uh, what he calls calumnies against Oxford and Cambridge. There are some book reviews in the Edinburgh Review from 1808 to 1810. So now we're in the early part of the 19th century that really take Oxford and Cambridge to task on utilitarian grounds. His responses are pretty extensive, but they're excerpted in The Great Tradition, uh, Richard Gamble, Richard Gamble's volume that we've been working through in reverse. So now we're, Cobleston's kind of the, seems on some level to be a bit of a kind of intellectual father to the flourishing that happened at Oriel College. He was both a kind of remarkable thinker and also a remarkable leader. So one of those rare personalities that combines the active and contemplative faculties to really kind of pitch perfect point. Um, so he's both both a conservative in the sense of trying to conserve liberal education against the utilitarians, but also a reformer. So very seems in that way to be very similar to Thomas Arnold, who defends classical education and really puts it on a solid footing at rugby school. Copleston sounds like he did something similar at Oxford. And so you can class him with the Oriel Noetics. These are kind of a, a group, unofficial group at Oxford. You can see them as the counterparts somewhat to the Tractarians or Oxford movement that John Henry Newman was a part of. So also high church Anglicans, but Copleston and his buddies were, you might say, a bit more liberal or kind of rationalists really believed in the Church of England and its role as the national religion. But I think they were not as interested in looking back to the kind of 
Catholic roots of Anglicanism in the way that John Henry Newman and his friends were. And so you can see some of the more modern cast of mind, I think, in Copleston. In these excerpts that we read for today and that we're going to discuss, he gets into a long discussion of political economy. So he's clearly interested in the kind of nascent social social sciences. He's an admirer of Adam Smith. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just a really interesting kind of Oxford trilogy that we're we're jumping into here. Yeah. Well, we should talk about that quote that you opened with. Uh, Lovely. I just thought it was so beautiful. Yeah. This is a... I first was made aware of that observation about Genesis, about that passage by Andrew Peterson in, in one of his books. He makes that exact same point. So Andrew Peterson oh, who's that? is a singer and a songwriter, also the author of the Wingfeather Saga, you know, kind of young adult oh, okay. fantasy, um, just you know, really fun stuff. But the quote in this context is really, really interesting because it just seems kind of like a, like a quick theological refutation of utilitarianism. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like there's these fruits that have this particular purpose, these plants, you know, good for eating. And then there's these plants that are just pleasing to the eyes. Right. And God made them both. And uh, it's just like, yeah, they're just there because they look beautiful. And that's their purpose. <laughs> they're not paying the bills. They're not helping pay rent. They're just there to look good. Yep. No, I'm just looking out at the Douglas fir trees outside my window. And they're, yeah, very pleasant to look at. I mean, I'm in Oregon where Douglas fir is big business for lumber. But I mean, I'm not chopping down my trees. <laughs> I don't have enough to make any money on them. Um, nor would I want to. I mean, it's just, they're just so lovely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that quote comes in the context, the broad purpose of this reply to the calumnies against Oxford is against the utilitarians, but he inserts that reflection on these trees that are pleasant to look at in the garden, actually where he's arguing against John Milton and John Locke, um, who are basically his friends in this quarrel, but he disagrees with them on the question of student compositions. Because both Milton and Locke are opposed to students writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, why would you force kids to like write Latin poetry? I mean, either they're going to not have a knack for poetry. So both, I think both Milton and Locke assume that the kids will have a knack for Latin. And so they could do it in theory. Um, but either they won't have a knack for poetry, for verse. And so you'll just be torturing them. Or they will have an act for it, and then you'll make them spend all this time on poetry, which will just cause them to be poor and miserable because they'll <laughs> spend all their time doing things that will really, you know, make them zero money. Like poetry has <laughs> just got to be the worst possible option for a man of letters. <laughs> but we'll get to that. We need to deal with the utilitarians before we deal with Milton and Locke. And I mean, I think a few broader reflections are in order because I don't want to tire our listeners out too much because on one level, we're just hammering some of the same points every single episode, which are like, you know, classics and great books are useful for, or not useful, but they're, they're good in themselves and they can't be reduced to mere utility. 
maybe they're also useful for something else, but those aren't primary considerations. I mean, we'll run through the arguments and Copleston has a nice spin on them. And I think there's some very sly rhetorical stuff he's doing here that it's worth thinking about. But I think a broader a broader reflection is in order. And this is some of the stuff you were saying, Jonathan, before we went on the air, just about what classical education is. Uh, I think this is one of these really fraught debates in our current context that get seems like it has no final resolution. But as we go backwards in time, reading through these defenders of liberal education, actually it gets resolved quite easily. And then just contrasting kind of 19th century English writing on this question with modern American writing on this question is interesting. So yeah, can you share a little bit about uh, what you were saying there? Because really what I want is for our discussions here about these texts and arguments to like have the rubber meet the road for us and for educators and for anybody just thinking about like, why would I waste my time with Pindar or Right. So the, 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 the contrast that we see is today when even bringing up the topic of defining classical education can be really controversial. It's like, oh, this is a really controversial thing. Everybody has their own definition and it's such an ambiguous term. And so you get into all of these disputes. And of course, ambiguity is, um, can be a cesspool for controversy. <laughs> And, and so that's, that's where we find ourselves. I, one, one of the, you know, I won't name names, but one, one important figure in the contemporary classical education movement has a video where he says, today I will try and attempt the impossible to define classical education. And it's like, oh, my, wow, this is a, such a difficult task. Uh, can a mere mortal do it? And so that's, that's the current context. It's like, wow, it's crazy. It's like, it's just, why even? And, and, and it's become both so heated and so ambiguous in the minds of many that there's all sorts of folks that are like, you know what? Let's just drop this idea of classical education and just focus on providing a good education. Yeah. Let's just do our best and just forget about these definitions and all that stuff. It seems like classical education is like a vibe. And it has serious content. It has like great books content and it has, you know, rigorousness and all this stuff. But most of all, it's a vibe. And so that's why it's so hard to find. Well, right. And, and it's also indicative of a sort of identity crisis, which is not always a bad thing, right? And it's like, well, we got we to gotta really figure out what we're about and what we're doing here. So that's good. And that's why I think looking at these earlier authors would be extremely helpful for uh, figures in the movement, both you know teachers, leaders, students, is because the, the more you go back in time, the clearer <laughs> the, clearer the issue is. Um, you look at, for instance, in our discussion with Arnold, Arnold, Thomas Arnold does not make his defense for classical education easy. He says, look, we got you know we got Milton at home. We got Shakespeare at home. Why, why study these other guys? And it's just assumed, right? That classical education, classical learning is the learning that pertains to the civilizations of ancient Greece and Rome. It's just assumed. No, hardly you see any, at least in the text that we've looked at, any debates about what it is. It's just like, this is what it is. 
And this is why it's valuable even in the modern world. Yeah, it's not a question of methodology or philosophy. It's just kind of a, it's almost academic jargon. But it's, it's, it's like, it's not even jargon or shorthand. It's just like a degree, you know, mm-hmm. just normal tools of the trade is you go to Oxford. That's a university in the town of Oxford. You do classical education. <laughs> that's studying Latin and Greek. Simple. Yeah, pretty, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And I think that having that sort of clarity can help folks decide what it is that they want to do it's like okay if classical education is this you know the study of ancient greece and rome do we want to do that exclusively or do we want to do some other stuff for instance arnold himself is not does not want to provide his students exclusively right with a classical education he wants to give them some other things right even though that's the focus and maybe that's you know what where the movement wants to go and that's fine but just having the, the clarity of vision would really uh, aid them in their task. And I think it's worth bringing this up, not not to be snide or anything about like, well, if you just read what we've read, <laughs> then you wouldn't have to have these debates about classical education. I think it's just helpful to have that historical perspective on the phrase. Yeah. Because yep. people construct these kind of weird ed- edifices on the phrase and what it supposedly means. And so if you just have, it's like, oh, it's pretty simple if you go backwards a little bit. That doesn't mean the debates aren't worth having. Because one thing I was saying to Jonathan earlier is there's a certain kind of suffocating narrowness I get, sense of narrowness I get from reading this stuff and just kind of reading the bios of all these people. That may be unjustified, and it may be a personal problem, but I feel it, so you know, <laughs> speak, speak my truth. And like all these guys knew each other, and they all did the same thing. Oh, you want to be a man of letters in England in the 19th century, you need to get into Oxford, and then you need to be accepted into the Anglican clergy. <laughs> and all these debates about liberal education are going to happen within these pretty narrow confines. And so like many other things, you know, we've taken this phrase and Americanized it, which is not a criticism. I love America. I'm an American. And so what was a very minority elite thing, classical education has kind of been blown up to be democratic and to be much more expansive. Uh, you know, we've taken this kind of quasi-aristocratic ideal and made it, implanted it in the American frontier, so to speak. You know, classical education is for everybody. The more people, the better. It can be all sorts of things. It's really broad. It's going gonna, it's gonna to save your soul, and it's going to save America. I mean, that's a... Well, thanks to all people. Yeah. Is that a little hokey? Sometimes. I mean, that's, I think of what Sean Barnett wrote for us. Um, People can go look for it on the blog about like, I don't remember, like a little house on the prairie diorama. It's like a living diorama. It's like, okay, it's a little hokey sometimes, but it's really (laughs) expansive and like can be very moving and powerful. It's got 
It's got big aspirations. I love that. It's high energy. Yeah. And so look, classical education used to mean the study of ancient Greece and ancient Rome for these guys. Right. It doesn't really mean that now because people are just using it differently. Maybe people should drop the term and kind of restore the original definition and think of something else to talk about what they're trying to do. I don't I don't really care, honestly. The debates people and arguments people are having right now about kind of what is classical education, etc., are ultimately the same arguments Arnold, Newman, Copleston are advancing and having. Are these books useful or an end in themselves? What are they useful for, etc.? So keep having the debates. Keep making the case. Keep thinking through it. Keep going back to the sources. I mean, that's the important thing. You see each of these guys go back to someone before him, both in kind of more recent English memory and in ancient memory. So I don't know. I I just think that's helpful framing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, <clears throat> if someone else has already undergone the journey, might as well see the travel notes. Yeah. Right. That's one of the, the benefits of Gamble's anthology. Undoubtedly. That you kind of get to see... Um, you get to see many fellow travelers across the ages and they, they're just telling you what they've seen and what they've learned. And that's a great place for many of us to get many, many goodies. Exactly. And it's really clear that this, these are the notes of a fellow traveler, someone far advanced compared to us. I mean, these guys are towering intellect, but the concerns are just, you know, profoundly relevant and modern in the sense of like contemporary just expressed better <laughs> than, I, <laughs> than I could do right he's just a great a great writer uh, so he opens the excerpt by asking or by saying some who dispute the utility of classical learning have joined issue on this ground what remuneration does a boy receive for the time and money expended in this pursuit for what employment does it fit him or how does it enable him to improve his fortunes so, boom, right out the gate. Why don't you learn to code instead of Latin? What is the point? It is these same, these are the same questions, <laughs> the same exact questions. Mm -hmm. And um, to it's funny now that you read it, I, it just made me think of how, and in some ways you can think of how Aquinas structures his his articles. Yeah, it's like you get the question. It's like yeah, it would seem that la 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 la. And 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 it's, these are really like you know, objections, and so he's just boom. Here are the objections. This is exactly what I'm going to argue against. It's pretty clear, but it's also very eloquently expressed. And it's interesting how you know one of the he, he there's there's several things here, but I one of the uh, initial things that I that I found really interesting is his discussion of political economy. So he, he, he begins with that part of the discussion. One of the things that he says is he, he begins to, to discuss specialization, you know, division of labor. And he, one of the things that he says is in, in terms of the economy, in terms of efficiency, perfecting crafts, there's nothing like division of labor. Division of labor is gonna is gonna make the trains run on time. 
It's going to make the GDP, you know, skyrocket. It's going to make things happen in a big way. But then he, <laughs> he, this is what he says about specialization. He says, there is no saying to what extent it may not be carried. And the more the powers of each individual are concentrated in one employment, the greater skill and quickness will he naturally display in performing it. But while he thus contributes more effectually to the accumulation of national wealth, he becomes himself more and more degraded as a rational being. Well, can I say something about what you just read? Yes, please. This seems to me a, if I may, clearer statement uh, or explanation of the argument that Newman makes that I was kind of going back and forth on a couple weeks ago with Dr. J. Yeah. When Newman talks about knowledge, the more particular knowledge gets, the less the less it actually is knowledge. And it's like, what are you talking about? And so we talked about like knowing what's in the iPhone and just kind of perceiving it. But having it be a question of kind of the performance of tasks, I think helps explain it. A little bit better, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and I think the what he says right afterwards is it's a continuation of that explanation. So he says, in proportion as his sphere of action is narrowed, his mental powers and habits become contracted, and he resembles a subordinate part of some powerful machinery, useful in its place, but insignificant and worthless out of it. Yep. So I mean, it seems. Pr- seems extremely intuitive if you're only doing x and your attention and focus and mental energy is only directed towards x your mind is gonna get narrow it's just gonna focus on that one thing yep and here's the interesting thing about his broader argument about utility you know he he says he has a simile you're like machinery in the 21st century economy well, really, and even then, and in the kind of thick of the Industrial Revolution, you can be very quickly, if you're just doing X, if you're just producing, be replaced by machinery. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is, this is the kind of one of the judo moves you can make against the utilitarians is like, look, you want people to get a really utility-focused education so that they can go make money for themselves. Well, that might be really short-term utility because you just train someone to do the one widget task you just train someone to code and that can actually either be outsourced or done with ai for example there's a very sad story from walnut creek california near where i grew up of this guy who'd been doing software engineering for a long time and the company was decided to outsource and you know to get severance you have to train your replacement in a different country who's going to do it for a quarter of the amount of money and then once you train the person who's replacing you you get they cut you the check that's like equivalent to you know like a couple months salary and he did it and he finished training the guy got a severance check went into his car and shot himself And I, yeah, I just, I think that, you know, that's not the case of becoming machinery, but when your one task that you do 
can kind of be picked up and dropped somewhere else. It's very similar to machinery. And then obviously with deindustrialization is always kind of in danger of one or the other, of outsourcing or of being automated. And so it's almost like not very utilitarian to have a utilitarian education. And so this is one of the defenses that I don't think is very good, but it can be rhetorically helpful for liberal education. It's like, look, these people are actually better in the marketplace. They're better able to take care of themselves when they have this really broad education. And it's borne out by data. I think it was Matthew Iglesias tweeted out recently the like median salary of philosophy majors. It's like, higher than physics or computer science or anything. It's like, it's well over, you know, easily into the six figures. And it's people who are like, you know, just arguing in class all day about whatever, epistemology. It's like, what, what, what use is this? It's actually kind of useful. One of the, one of the interesting things about his observation here is that Adam Smith, of course, famous for, discussing some of these ideas such as division of labor was aware of this effect upon the mind. And so he knows that this is a problem, right? And he sees it as a, it seems he does see it as a problem. As Copleston calls him the great and enlightened Adam Smith. Yeah. What an introduction. Maybe one day we'll introduce one of our guests this way. The great and enlightened. (laughs) Yeah. If God forbid we have an economist on our show. (laughs) The way that he tried, it seems like Adam Smith wants to deal with this concern by saying, look, the more the wealthier a nation gets, the more readily can engage in intellectual pursuits. And it doesn't seem like this is something that satisfies Copleston. Right. Yeah. This is Adam Smith's kind of defense against the... Uh, what Marx would call the kind of alienation of labor is like, well, and I think Marx kind of makes the same argument as Smith is like, we just need fully automated industrialism. And then everyone can go, you know, work 15 hours a week, and then they can go read books. And so Smith sees it happening under capitalism. Marx is like, it's not gonna happen under capitalism, we just have to get turbo capitalist, and then convert that to communism, and then we'll achieve it. I mean, these guys are, Smith and Marx are basically making the same argument. Marx just wants to push it harder. <laughs> but Copleston's not satisfied. No. And I think he, he then moves on to, um, to question the, the premise but he, of, of this whole enterprise. He's like, look, okay, what, what is the purpose of our institutions? Is the sole purpose of our national institutions to generate wealth? And he also pushes the question even further. So this is, you know, if you're at a cocktail party and discussion is running dry, then you can remember this quote and come up with a discussion question. He says, but in truth, national wealth is not the ultimatum of human society. So, you know, you're at the cocktail party and you're like, what is the ultimatum of human society? <laughs> you know, that might spice things up. Um, and what, and yeah, and it's a great question. It's like, well, what is human society for? Yep. What are we doing here? Is it all about increasing GDP? This really reminds me of Sertiange because Copleston 
is an admirer of this kind of nascent field of political economy. He corresponded with the British Prime Minister, Robert Peel, about questions of political economy. Um, so the guy was interested in how to increase the wealth of the nation and leverage it properly. Um, but the reason I bring up Sertiange is because Copelson warns against the too early study of political economy in the life of students. He says it can be dangerous. And this reminds me of Sertiange who said, you know, if you just study geology, you'll just be a rock hound. If you just study astronomy, you'll just kind of gaze listlessly into the heavens. Like there's all these dangers, the kind of shadow side of each discipline. And the one that I found most compelling was uh, just the study of physiology or kinesiology or whatever um, turns you into a materialist. And I think the one of the dangers of studying economics or political science, political economy, whatever kind of the contemporary equivalent of it is nowadays, is you just assume that GDP going up is the point. And I mean, this has been, I think, the working assumption of like, I don't get too political, but of the Republican Party for the late 20th century and early 21st is you just, we just need the chart needs to go up and therefore everything's good. And so people have proposed a lot of like alternative ways of measuring civilizational health. It's like just the GDP going up that <laughs> that can mask so many serious illnesses. And so, yeah, Copelson's saying, look, that's not the point. What is the chief good? Right. Yeah. His, I think you, what you said is exactly right. It leads to a kind of mon monomania of, like, this is the good. This is the only good that we're considering. Mm -hmm. And Coppleton is arguing, look, there are, not only are there other goods that need to be taken into consideration, but perhaps this is not even the chief good. Right? And, and to even be in a position to bring up those questions and to have those objections, you probably need a foundation in something other than political economy. Exactly, which is what he'll what he he'll argue. It's like no, to have these these students need to be grounded in logic. You know, he also says mathematics, that, so that they can pursue the arguments to their ends. But also, he wants I, I'm sure he wants them to be quite familiar in classical philosophy and discussions about human nature and human society that are that should inform. You know, what are the different human goods that need to be taken into account when ordering a society? Yeah. And so we've we've jumped ahead, I think, a little bit, just his first, I think, one of his most interesting rhetorical moves at the very beginning. He brings up the kind of quarrel that Newman puts in the mouths of Cicero and Cato, which you may remember if you listen to the idea of a university episode, Newman says that Cato rejects Greek philosophy because it's not useful for the Roman city-state. It's a just kind of effete distraction. Whereas Cicero says, no, no, no. It's, it answers to something profound in human nature. It's, it's part of the panoply of human goods, which we then kind of had a little discussion whether this, this is totally what Cicero is talking about. But regardless, just taking those two things as types, like philosophy is not useful to the city, 
uh, actually it's, it's good for humans and the city is made up of humans. So it is good. He kind of brings up something like, like this contrast. And then he says something interesting. This is another kind of fun judo move he makes against the utilitarians. He says, look, what do you even mean by utility? Because what's good, what's useful for an individual is not necessarily useful for the state. Like what makes you rich doesn't actually necessarily help your country. Yeah, I mean, this is nowhere clearer, I think, than in the 21st century American economy. It's like all these people lamenting like about how all the best minds graduating from the Ivy League just go off to do consulting and work on Wall Street where they all just get super rich. And what good is this to anybody? And so Cobleson says, in fact, it's really an inverse ratio for the most part. What's really good for you is not good for the city. What's good for the city is probably not going to be all that great for you in terms of making a lot of money. So choose your utility, utilitarians. Whose utility matters to you? And I think this is important, one, because it kind of disarms the utilitarians, but also because I think he's he's hiding something because he's arguing against the utilitarians. And so he has to kind of disarm them. I think Copleston agrees with Newman, ultimately, that liberal education is an end in itself, and you don't need to justify it in terms of its usefulness or something else. But throughout this, he mostly makes the argument that, it's, that liberal education is really useful for the city or for you know your nation, um, has these kind of broad uh, positive effects if you have a bunch of people who have pursued liberal education. But he seems to be fudging a little bit because I think, like, take the quote from Genesis, or not quote from Genesis, but his commentary on Genesis. Ultimately, God gave us these trees, and you're just supposed to delight in them. That's what classical education trains you to do, is just, like, delight in the ideas. But he's, he has to advance that kind of undercover of, this is really good for England. Well, he, yeah, and he, he has, you know, his discussion on, on utility. He, he continues it later on as well. And he brings up the question, well, utility is always geared towards a particular end. It's not like this empty, you know, this simple thing. Utility towards what end? Right. And so depending on the end that you're seeking, then that then you can talk about what, you know, what tool has the most utility towards that end. Right. And so this is, this is where the question of like, does the GDP go up? really comes into play because it's like, right. Okay. So it's, uh, we should really be thinking about what's useful for the United Kingdom. Well, and the utilitarians be like, okay, okay. Yeah. It's, it's the wealth of the nation. It's making the, it's making the chart go up. He's like, no, no, it's not. It's not even that. It's not even, it's not even the GDP. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I like your description of this as a, as a judo move because he's, he's using their terminology to push them to ask, his questions, <laughs> right? Right. It's like, yeah, li- okay, utility. Let's start with that. Let's start with that. That's good. That's good, guys. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. utility, towards what? For what? And, and then why? Why is that the, the thing? Why is it not this? Mm-hmm. And so he's, uh, you can almost imagine this Socratic dialogue, right? 
that he could have with these with his interlocutors. Yeah. Uh, and it would just be delightful to read such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's making like taking their own, the, the kind of heavy weight of their own kind of vacuous intellectual edifice and just like letting that weight press on itself. And then it just kind of crack, 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 keeps, keeps falling. So where does he take that? Where does he take this, this argument? He takes it. I don't know how convincing you found this section. I have some questions about it. Is that the one that starts on page 502? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just in case anyone's you know, tracking, the, the faithful listeners who already have a copy of Gamble's The Great Tradition. In the cultivation of literature is found that common link, which unites the jarring sects and divisions in one interest, supplies the common topics, kindles common feelings. And he gives all these things that the cultivation of literature does. My kind of summary I wrote in the margin of this paragraph is he seems to see literature, and I think here he's there's a shorthand for classical classical studies, the study of the literature of Greece and Rome, as like a civil religion, which is peculiar because there already was a civil religion, the Church of England. I mean, that's the thing that's supposed to accomplish both culturally and ethically and imaginatively unite England into kind of one body with the same same thoughts, same ideals, the same feelings. So is Anglicanism that for the mass, but the classics... The civil religion of the elite, or something. I don't know. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you thought about it in terms of civil religion. I was thinking about it in terms of a common culture, which there's some affinity between those two. But it seems like this is this is what he wants. He wants there to be a common conversation, you know, all sorts of commonplaces. It's like, yeah, we all know these stories. We're acquainted with these arguments and because we have this heritage in common, we, we are culturally, you know, members of this, of the same body. And this is, this is how we make this happen. Yeah. He says this cultivation of literature is supposed to engage the attention of the higher orders. So that seems like this is the common culture of the elite. Uh, but also impart a dignity to the several professions of life and to mercantile adventure. So it's not just aristocratic. It seems to belong to the kind of professional and merchant class as well. I think the laboring, the laboring multitude is excluded here. And he says, classical literature answers this purpose most effectually. And then he makes an argument for just the, the plain superiority of the Greeks and Romans. Like they just did this stuff better than anyone. Yeah, I d- I also had a question about what exactly he meant by some of the, the phrases you just read. How does um, liberal these liberal pursuits, right, the pursuit of this sort of literature, impart dignity to the several professions of life and to the mercantile adventure? That's something that I don't think he goes in further depth. Well, I mean, he I think he says it. A little earlier, he says that liberal studies don't teach 
the student any one office or calling, but it enables him to act his part in each of them with better grace and more elevated carriage. Um, and then he, he's quoting somebody. It doesn't, he doesn't cite him and there's no footnote, so I don't know. But it fits a man to perform justly, skillfully, and magnanimously all the offices, both private and public, of peace and war. So, yeah, if knowledge is properly the knowledge of the whole, then this kind of Copelstonian utility argument about the classics is that they're the kind of civic knowledge of the whole. This is both public and private life uh, are kind of summed up in classical study and you get you get the full view of how to carry yourself and how to act in public and private through a knowledge of the Greeks and Romans. I don't know that's totally convincing to be honest. Yeah, I just I it just seems incomplete. Well before we push on to try and figure out where his argument goes, he takes a little detour to answer another objection that might arise. Okay, okay, like sure, let's grant that the Greeks and Romans do this better and that than anyone better than Milton and Shakespeare. And so we have to do classical studies. Uh, we'll, we'll grant that, but why not just read this stuff in translation? That's a great, great discussion. And so he allows that translation will accomplish some things perfectly well, or he allows that they might, I don't know that he says they absolutely do. A bare chronicle of facts or a rigid demonstration in science may perhaps be transferred from one language to the other without loss or injury. Yeah, he says, where ideas are few, simple, and determinate, they readily find in all languages an adequate expression. So it's like, okay, so we can carry on the kind of, you know, scientific and technical knowledge in any language we want, like religious instruction. On kind of core tenets can be carried on in any language. But how shall the inspirations of genius and fancy be packed up, lettered, and consigned over from hand to hand in this literary traffic? And he has a whole series of rhetorical questions. And he says, yeah, he concludes, all that constitutes the grace, the beauty, the charm, the dignity of composition, all that tends to awaken the fancy or to affect the heart, like the finer and more volatile parts of substances, is lost during the experiment. Or if these qualities be partially retained, they are in a manner the invention of the translator, and serve rather to tell us that the original was excellent than to present us with a view of that excellence itself. And that is a just a great statement. The, the passage of Latin literature I thought of when reading that line from Coppelston was the opening to the confessions, Augustine's confessions. So I read it first in English, Pine Coffin's translation, which is really good and very moving. And then I remember the first time I read the Latin, I was kind of shocked. Like, wait, wait, hold on. Where's all this stuff Pine Coffin was adding in? Like it, Augustine wasn't doing this. I felt kind of cheated. Like, is Pine Coffin the better writer than Augustine? Like all these fancies of the translator. But then reading it again, I remember we were sitting in the ALI office in Moscow, Idaho, reading the opening aloud, coming back to it again. And like, it really is powerful and moving stuff. And then you were pointing out Augustine's use of, kind of the imperative and imperative mood and the vocative case and how it lends it this really intimate lends his writing, his addresses to God, this really intimate power. 
that I then realized that intimacy and power is what Pine Coffin is trying to convey to you in English, but he doesn't have the same tools because English is just a different language than Latin. And so I'm like, they're both great, but they're just different. Like you're getting some really great work on the part of the translator to convey a mood, a vibe. He's given you the vibe, but it's just totally different linguistically in order to accomplish that vibe because it's a totally different language. Yeah, and the, I mean, the just the, the, the conclusion of what you read it's just amazing. It's just amazing. That part where it talks about how if it's, you know, if it's a truly excellent translation, it reflects both the genius of the translator and it points to the fact that what is being translated is truly excellent. But if you want to see the, um, the glory itself of the text, you just have to read it in the original language. And it's interesting that despite the fact that it's a fairly sizable paragraph, he begins by saying, you know, this would require extended argument, but if you know more than one language, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I think he's right. I think he's absolutely right. So it's, it's kind of in vogue to say like translation. There's a lot of folks that will, will want to say things like translation is impossible. You can't really translate like, and languages are just so different that you can't really communicate across them. Uh, and the first time I encountered that idea was actually was someone was reading a French philosopher, Derrida, translated into English, and he was telling me this fellow student who you know only knew English, of course, was telling me that translation was impossible that you can't really understand what an author is trying to say because languages are so different. And I, and I had this, the first time I'd encountered that idea and I said, wow, that's interesting. Where did you encounter this thought? I mean, look, I grew up speaking English and Spanish. I remember like visitors from Canada or the States coming over and wanting to communicate what sort of tacos they wanted. And I would translate and it seems like it worked out. It seems like we were inhabiting the same universe and that and that the same concepts and ideas can be communicated everyone got the salsa they wanted exactly exactly maybe not as maybe spicier than they wanted but they got exactly what they asked for <laughs> <laughs> and, and so i asked well where, where do you come and bump into this i guess oh there's this this french thinker that's like oh did he write in english no 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 it was translated and i was like dude are you kidding me like, is this a troll <laughs> Like totally serious, totally bought in. It's like so, you did, but you understand his argument, right? Which was translated from French into English. So anyway, you see, you see the point. <laughs> is this a, yeah, is this an example of like performative contradiction? <laughs> like, I learned from this translated text that translation is impossible. Yes, physician, heal thyself. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so he takes. Um, on the one hand, he realizes that to really make the argument, it would take a lot of work. On the other hand, it's something that you, sh you can understand if you know more than one language. It's like, yeah, you can translate these things, but for some particular excellences, just you can't really replicate them. Because language is a combination of form and meaning. 
So while you can get the meaning, you will lose the form. And this dovetails into his reply to the objections um, that you talked about, the kind of Thomistic form of his argument or scholastic form of his argument. He even has it. He, he kind of lists out the objections raised in these calumnies to which he's responding. First, that classical learning forms the sole business. Secondly, that hence the taste. On and on. And one of them is one of these calumnies is these boys go to public school and then they go to Oxford and all they do is study classical languages. Like what an incredible waste of time. It's just like grammar and lexical entries for decades. He's like, come on. What do you think we're doing when we're studying Greek and Latin? We're reading, you know, these are dead languages. You can't go talk to anybody who's a native born Latin or Greek speaker. So how do you access communication in these languages? Through reading the writings that have been preserved in those languages. Studying the languages means studying philosophy, history, politics, poetry, on and on. It's like, come on, guys. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's such a good section. Do you think we were just studying grammar all these years? It's like, all right, folks, here we go. The K system but this time for adults. <laughs> the case system, year 12. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I can see why he calls them calumnies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the title, so I don't think we've read the full title of this response, but it's just fun. It reply to the calumnies of the Edinburgh Review against Oxford, containing an account of studies pursued in that university. <laughs> One piece of context I haven't read extensively. I, I've really never bothered to try and understand 19th century Anglicanism, but I guess this isn't really Anglicanism in particular. But one piece of context that might be helpful and interesting when thinking about all this in his reply to the utilitarians defending classical education is that there was a big reform around the time of the French Revolution in England in education that was. I think in part a response to the French Revolution. And so it was kind of an establishment response to, again, this is very sketchy. I've just read little bits and pieces, so I don't have the full picture, but there seems to be some effort on the part of the kind of religious and educational and political establishment, which is all the same thing in England, to prevent their elite students from becoming revolutionaries and staging a kind of Jacobin revolution in England and doing that through kind of putting the student's nose to the grindstone and, you know, working them really hard so they don't have time to come up with crazy political theories, but also really steeping them in classical wisdom. You know, if you read enough Aristotle, you're not going to become a Jacobin. Whether that's true or not, I mean, it's kind of interesting. This is Here's another thing I'm not sure is true, but sounds very similar that I was told growing up in California is that when Reagan was governor, he tried to deal with the problem of all these student radicals from in the 60s and 70s by uh, kind of raising tuition in the California university systems. So these people would go get jobs to pay for their education. And the UCs used to be really cheap, which is true, I know. And now they're very expensive. And this was supposedly at least set in motion by Reagan so that people would stop occupying people's park and like trying to create a Marxist commune 
Um, and so they'd go, you know, work in the coffee shops to pay for their tuition. So it seems like maybe there's similar dynamic. It's like these students could have a revolution on our hands. We better. And so, you know, you get the, the neoliberal version is like raising tuition. So they have to go get outside jobs. The classical version is they're going to just read so much Aristotle. I, I mean, I can make my pick of which one's preferable, but. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> well, I, you want leisure. You, you need some. You need some rest from work, man. Yeah, and I don't think that Aristotle, at least according to Sergio, would qualify as leisure reading. Well, yeah, leisure, le- leisure, and a uh, Joseph Piperian sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not recreation. Right. Yeah. That's probably that's the that's the term that he that he uses. It's not recreational reading. So coming toward the close. Speaking of Sertiange, Copleston has some very similar reflections to Sertiange just about the process of education. And this is where he kind of gets into the danger of politi- studying political economy, um, which is kind of sy- systems thinking. It's kind of systemic. It gives you a whole map of reality that you can kind of slot everything into it. And he says, that's really dangerous to introduce to young minds. He says, there's perhaps something in all theoretical views of society which tends to harden the feelings and to represent man as a blind part of a blind machine. And I think that's really astute that you give, you take young people who are hungry and curious for knowledge, and then you give them a kind of preformed system and says, everything fits into this system and they run with it. And it ends up making their minds really narrow. And so I think he, he would say, you really have to feed the minds of young people on uh, more fulsome stuff and, and stuff that's more rigorous because he says political economy is actually pretty easy. I mean, compared to math or symbolic logic or Greek or Latin, like this, this is pretty easy. So hold off on political economy, do this more liberal stuff first, especially because a liberation, a liberal education, he says, cannot be acquired in a later period of life if the morning of his days have been occupied with other cares and the intellectual habits already settled in different forms and postures. If you kind of straitjacket a young person's mind into the servile arts and utilitarian thinking, it's only with a heroic effort that later in life, he's going to break out of that and be like, actually, I really want a broad liberal view of reality. Yeah, it's it's a matter of habits, right? What sort of habits are you cultivating in that? That makes me realize that one would expect Arnold and Copplestone to be kind of stuffy and to be really kind of rigorists. And it's like, no, let's just push folks as hard and as far as they could possibly go. But they're really attentive to the, the uh, I guess, to human nature, to the frame of the student. It's like, no, not... You know, a younger student needs something different mm-hmm. from an older student. They don't need to do the exact same thing. And yep. and you don't need to do everything even, right? And and he, you know, Coppleston, for instance, points to the folly of like thinking that you can give someone a lifetime of education and just just a few years. And he, he puts it really, re- really well. He says, it is a folly to think that everything which a man is to know must be taught him while young, as if he were to spring at once 
from college and be entrusted with the immediate management of the world. <laughs> Amazing. And he says, as if life had no intervals for extending knowledge, as if intellectual exercise and the act of learning were unbecoming the state of manhood. I mean, what a great contrast to how we often think about college. It's like, yeah, you're going to go to college and then you're going to be ready to change the world. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right? And it's like, well, that, wow, that's crazy. That's truly wild. And you hear echoes of Arnold that liberal education is, and Sayers, is giving people the tools to continue their education later. Like you can't teach everybody everything, but you can equip them to, you know, in that kind of hackneyed phrase, be engaged in lifelong learning. And it's like, I think the problem with how we envision lifelong learning now is like, oh, it's just a matter of curiosity. You just have to have a childlike spirit and you'll just keep learning all all your life. And it's like, well, if you, you want it to be actually real learning and attaining real knowledge throughout life, you got to set people up with the right tools um, to do it. And that's really what school and college is all about is um, laying that foundation for, you know, both both the hard knowledge of like knowing how to read Latin and Greek and math and whatnot, but also having this kind of liberal spirit, which the content of those disciplines will give you. And I, and I agree that he's attentive to human nature and just nature in general, um, because he's not making his recommendations in the abstract. That's another problem, I think, when people try and do their defenses of liberal education, it's all just kind of very airy. And whereas he's really grounded in reality, I think. Um, and this is something, Jonathan, that has you've been really good on as we've built the Ancient Language Institute, is you're thinking, we're making our decisions about curriculum and about teaching and about scheduling and classes with a always with one eye on who are our students, what's possible for them, what's their life situation. Copleston says, this is again kind of saying, let's hold off on political economy. Because I imagine the utilitarians he's arguing against were saying like, if you want people to really take care of England, then they need to really know economics. And so he's arguing, like, hold off on that. And his reason is, where a choice is left us among many pursuits, all of which are in their several degrees beneficial, I would be very cautious how that was singled out and made predominant. The point being, there's lots of things to study. There's like an infinite amount of stuff to study and a very finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. and so how are you going to order those things? And so you've got to think about the hierarchy and how the hierarchy works. Because yes, it's a question of rivalry in one aspect, but it's not it's not a totally zero-sum game because teaching someone political economy is actually going to go better if they know, if they have a liberal education first. Whereas if you teach someone political economy first, the liberal education later is not going to go well, is his argument. Final thoughts on Copleston? Yeah, um, there's a really wonderful defense you know, and summary form as to why he really favors the study of classics so but i won't i won't read that but I'll, I'll read a shorter version he says it is not the discovery of neutral salts or the decomposition of alkalis that can alter the value of ancient literature 
that can make eloquence less powerful, poetry less charming, historical example less forcible, or moral and political reflections less instructive. And it's just it's just a wonderful way of describing the reality of enduring things. Like human nature will always be with us. Beauty is a real thing that we can learn to appreciate. Mastering speech is something to be desired. And it's it's something that it's a it's a perfection that's that can be attained to you know various degrees, but it doesn't matter what what's the the state of technology or the GDP, you know who we are as human beings. That's just here to stay. Well, on that note, thanks for listening to our discussion, New Humanists. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a moment, or at least give us five stars if you've enjoyed this. Um, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. <laughs>